Hello, kitties. My name is Brock. And my name is Pickens. And, and we're, we're from Cocktail, Cocktail Party Massacre. Massacre. Our podcast is equal parts horror movies, cocktails, and trivia. Each week, guests join us to discuss their favorite horror movies. We make a cocktail inspired by the horror movie they choose. And we challenge them to three deadly rounds of trivia on the movie. If they survive, they win the coveted title of Final Girl. And if they lose, they end up with their eyes gouged out by our very own trivia slasher. The best thing is, you get to listen with little to no risk of death. Unless you think you have what it takes to come on our show and win the Final Girl Challenge. Regardless, get get your cocktails cocktails in gear. And join us for Cocktail Party Massacre. Ireland, 1910. Europe was a creepy place to live at the start of the 1900s. The mystical and macabre were in vogue thanks to the advent of spiritualism, which, among other concepts, was the belief in communication with the dead. Some at-home DIY necromancy, if you will. This was also the advent of true crime fascination, with the murders of Jack the Ripper taking England by storm. The literary circle frequently intersected with this world of darkness, thanks to the likes of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes, who openly dabbled in spiritualism. And he was not alone, among such esteemed peers as Bram Stoker, Edgar Allan Poe, and H.P. Lovecraft. This morbid pop culture was consumed by all walks of life, but by and large, authorship was reserved for men only. It was uncommon, and by social standards anyway, unbecoming of a woman to write about such grisly subject matters. But Mildred Henrietta Gordon Dill was not a normal woman, at least by the standards of -of turn-of-the-century Ireland. She was an avid aficionado of all things gothic and grim, and wrote dark fiction under the pen name Andrew Mary. Her writing was well-received by the Irish public, with her debut story, Patty Risk, published in 1903. Critics called it a work of sound literary quality, though spoke of resentment of Catholic associations foreshadowing the dark troubles that were about to plague the country in the coming years. Mildred herself would not escape these troubles totally unscathed. Not that she had it bad, anyways. If you were a woman writer at this time, then it stood to reason that you were probably educated. And if you were educated, that meant that you were likely from the upper class. Either by circumstance of birth or because of her genuine talent, Mildred caught the attention of an Irish aristocrat named Jonathan Charles Darby, a gentleman from a proud and oft-whispered, cursed bloodline. In addition to inheriting his family's legacy, Darby had also inherited a castle, which sounds enviable until you dig deeper, because this castle carried a notorious reputation, notorious for its bloody history and the fact that it was widely believed by suspicious locals to be haunted. Suddenly, Mildred found herself the protagonist of so many gothic romances she consumed. She married Jonathan Darby and moved into the ancient residence of Lepp Castle. In doing so, she may have gotten more than she bargained for. 
Mildred was inspired by her new shadowy surroundings, and this fueled her writing. She delved further into unknown realms by holding seances in her new residence and making frequent use of the Ouija board. She also carefully documented her encounters with the supernatural. It's easy to imagine her in a long, flowing nightgown, walking among the halls of the ancient castle with a candle or lamp in hand. Face it, us writers were weird. But the spirits that haunted Lep Castle were old, arcane, and not all of them, allegedly, were human. For that reason alone, Mildred, endowed with occult knowledge as she was, might not have been prepared to encounter something far beyond the realms of mortal experience. It is believed that, in disturbing the spirits, she conjured something old, and potentially dangerous. It's best to hear it in her own words. The following is taken from two different accounts of the same incident, which occurred on November 15, 1915. Whilst dressing, I was startled by a loud yell of terror, stricken male, and female voices coming, apparently from Hall, and ran out to see the cause. My husband was out ahead of me. At his heels, I passed through corridor, onto the gallery running around two sides of halls. I was standing in the gallery looking down at the main floor, when I felt somebody put a hand on my shoulder. I saw the thing, about the size of a sheep, thin, gaunt, shadowy. Its face was human, to be more accurate, inhuman. Its lust in its eyes, which seemed half decomposed in black cavities, stared onto mine. The horrible smell, 100 times intensified, came up onto my face, giving me a deadly nausea. It was the smell of a decomposing corpse. At the same time, my husband pulled up sharply about 10 feet from the thing, and half-turned let fly a volley of abuse at me, ending up dressing up a thing like that to try and scare fools of a woman and servant, and try and make a fool of me. Mildred Darby, and by association her disbelieving husband, had just encountered the creature known as the Elemental. Folklorists and mythologists classify elementals as spirits of the land, and legend has it the Elemental of Lep Castle was summoned by druids in ancient times to protect the surrounding vicinity. Still, others say that this horrible creature is just one of the castle's many tortured former residents, deformed beyond recognition of anything resembling a human. In the end, the ghosts of Lep Castle weren't the ones who chased away Mildred and her husband. No, it was the Irish War of Independence that got to them. On July 30th, 1920, the Irish Republican Army battered down the doors and looted the Darby residence. Fortunately, Mildred and her husband had gotten wind of the revolt and fled to England. The IRA rounded up the castle's peacocks, which roamed the grounds, and hung them from the ramparts. They then set the ancient castle ablaze. Attributed to the durability of ancient stonework, or perhaps darker forces, but Lep Castle failed to burn entirely. The Darbys never returned to their castle, but Mildred, who lost many unpublished works in the conflagration, sued the new government for compensation. As a writer, I can tell you there is no greater treasure than one's work, so I sympathize with her entirely. There was also something else of immense value that the IRA may have missed. Within the cursed walls of Lep Castle was a concealed fortune, fiercely guarded by, perhaps, the most frightening of security measures, the restless spirits of the dead. 
Located in County Offaly, Ireland, Lep Castle is spelled like the English word leap, and this portends to the old residents' tragic origins. If the stories are to be believed, then Lep Castle was doomed from the get-go, or as horror author Shirley Jackson states in the opening paragraphs of The Haunting of Hill House, it was born bad. Those with knowledge of the land theorized that strategic fortifications or even ceremonial structures were built upon the site of Lep Castle as far back as 500 BC. More legendary accounts speak of the Celtic Druids recognizing the area as a place of immense spiritual power, perhaps a ley line or a vortex, as some New Agers might call it. Whatever the case, Lep Castle as we know it today did not come about until the 15th century, where it was founded by Clan O'Bannon secondary chieftain to the more powerful O'Carrolls. As a subclan to the O'Carrolls, the O'Bannons were granted a plot of land, which became known as Lem Ubanan. Legend has it that the two brothers at the head of the family had to decide who would take up leadership of the castle, and so they put this to a contest of bravery. The challenge was to jump, or leap, between the crevices of a high cliffside. One brother succeeded, and the other met a bloody and painful end on the jagged rocks below. Some say that this spilled blood was what helped cement the curse. Others say that it was the druids, who came afoul of the dangerous primordial elemental and sealed the entity away on the grounds, sowing the seeds for future paranormal activity. In 1513, the scheming local Earl of Kildare, who bore the unfortunate name of Gerald Fitzgerald, attempted a failed siege on the castle and was repelled. In 1516, he tried again, and only succeeded in destroying a portion of the keep. This may have been the first sign that the castle itself was more powerful than any army of mortal men. Perhaps the castle's fortifications are what drew the envy of the O'Carrolls, who ended up taking control of the grounds and kicking out the O'Bannons. I know I often compare certain people or events in history to Game of Thrones, it is one of my favorites, but the O'Carrolls really do sound like the vengeful and scheming Lannisters. The bloodshed began in earnest with the death of the clan patriarch, Mulrooney O'Carroll. Either it was a sudden passing or poor leadership, but the clan leader failed to appoint an heir. The power vacuum was to be filled by one of his three sons, Farganum, Thaddeus, and Tyg. The latter two ended up fighting over control for the title of the castle's rightful steward, and in mirroring the legend of the two founding brothers who begot the castle's curse, this rivalry ended in betrayal and bloodshed. While presiding over a weekly mass, Thaddeus' sermon was interrupted by the tempestuous arrival of his brother. Tyg accused Thaddeus of daring to begin mass without him, a grave insult. And I do mean grave. In retaliation, Tyg plunged a dagger into his brother's chest, right there in front of horrified worshippers and fellow family members. Thaddeus' blood soaked into the altar, and ever since, this portion of the castle has been referred to, appropriately, as the Bloody Chapel. Tyg took over the castle for a time, but at the cost of his mortal soul. And this only began the first of many crimes against humanity committed during the O'Carroll's reign of terror. Being the ruling clan, they frequently employed other families to fight their battles. However, they did not like paying them for services rendered, defying standard practice and codes of ethics. 
To get out of one such debt, the O'Carrolls approached the 39 members of the O'Neill family after a victory over an enemy and promptly had their throats slit. When the McMahon family assisted the O'Carrolls in driving back the Earl of Tyron, the O'Carroll chieftain, Charles, invited the family to a congratulatory banquet. He toasted the McMahons, they drank, and in a matter of minutes, they fell onto the table, dead. The O'Carroll family patriarch had poisoned the wine. The bodies in the McMahons were then bricked up inside the castle walls. And I mean, do you want ghosts? Because that's how you get ghosts. In the end, there would be somewhat of a comeuppance for all the horrors that the O'Carrolls wrought. During the English Civil War, the O'Carrolls captured a British soldier named Captain Darby. Charles had Darby imprisoned in the dungeon, most likely to waste away and rot in darkness. But Charles' own daughter, Deborah, who is sometimes called Finella, had witnessed the man being brought into the castle, and she fell madly in love with him. What sort of convincing it took her father to free him, or if Deborah resorted to her own clever means, the truth of the matter is occluded. But Deborah married Mr. Darby, and in doing so, the stewardship of the castle passed on to his lineage. The history of Lep Castle as a military stronghold and keep died with the last O'Carroll chieftain, and it became the residence of Deborah and her husband in 1659. But enough blood had already been spilt, and Lep Castle had been spoiled by generations of darkness. It was not to be a peaceful home. Perhaps this darkness was passed on to the first O'Carroll Darby heir, Jonathan, who, like the castle itself, may have also been born bad. Jonathan grew up to possess great martial prowess, but he was a ruthless leader, and perhaps not at all sane. In time, he became known as the Wild Captain. Though he was likely insane and cruel, such attributes could serve a man well at this time of history. The Glorious Revolution gave way to the conflicts between the Williamites and Jacobites, which left a trail of bodies across the kingdoms. Captain Jonathan Darby fought on the side of the Williamites, who upheld the rule of William of Orange. There is no body count attributed to Jonathan Darby, and his life seems more covered by legend than actual history. But rumor has it that his successful campaigns earned him a vast amount of wealth in gold. However, Darby doesn't sound like he was a happy man. In fact, he may have been downright paranoid, though this would not be entirely without merit. During such a tumultuous time, allegiances could shift rather quickly, and any hero one day could find themselves a villain the next, depending on who was in power. Seeing the writing on the wall, Jonathan decided to bury his treasure on the castle grounds, with the assistance of two servants. When the deed was done, Darby turned around and slaughtered the men in order to protect his secret. Not long after, he was imprisoned in Dublin for treason, an unrelated crime. This sentence ended when William of Orange, affectionately known as King Billy, came to power with the Williamite victory. The king had Darby freed as thanks for his contributions during the war. But whether it was the bloodshed at his hands catching up to him, or his time spent in the grim conditions of jail, Darby left the prison a broken man. Upon returning to Lep Castle, he searched for his treasure on his grounds, but could no longer find it. Ironically, the only two people who may have been able to help him locate it were dead. Perhaps it was part of the curse, or otherworldly retribution on behalf of his murdered servants, but all of Darby's efforts to locate his wealth were in vain. Though he was successful in continuing the Darby lineage, he died mad, without ever having located his treasure. Some say, though, that death hasn't stopped him, and the Wild Captain is just one of many restless spirits that allegedly haunt Lep Castle. 
many of those that haunt Lep Castle are victims of the O'Carroll's bloody reign. Thaddeus O'Carroll, the murdered priest, is said to haunt the bloody chapel where he was betrayed by his brother, and ghostly lights, or will-o'-the-wisps, can be seen at night floating around the steeple. Another eternal resident of Lep Castle is what ghost hunters refer to as a red lady or lady in red, much like the archetype of the lady in white said to haunt roadsides while dressed in, well, take a guess, ladies in red are purportedly their friendlier, but no less tragic, counterparts. They wear their eponymous red garments as a mark of being betrayed in love, and Lep Castle has the distinction of two specters who fall under this classification. The first is what is described as a very tall and striking woman, who makes her presence known by the sound of her beautiful scarlet dress rustling along the stone corridors. Notably, she carries a dagger in her hand, yet she is not a malevolent spirit, but a guardian who has been spotted at the bedsides of sleeping children. Supposedly, this is because, as a prisoner of the O'Carrolls, her own infant child was torn from her grasp and murdered in cold blood. This might explain why she carries the long dagger. She hasn't stopped seeking vengeance. More frightening is the ghost of a wild, nude woman whose face is obscured by a red veil or cloth. She is reported to appear screaming and running down corridors until she falls and vanishes from sight. The legend attributed to this lost soul is, she was a prisoner of one of the O'Carroll brothers, who murdered her when she refused to relent to their lascivious advances. Then there is the priest's house, which was later converted into a guest residence, though you might not want to stay there overnight. Thanks to Mildred Darby's well-documented accounts of her time at the castle, we are told that her guests would often find themselves joined in bed by a heavy-set snoring man, possibly a monk or former resident. The amorphous shades of monks can be seen among the ruined portions of the castle, and a servant in ancient peasant garb can often be spotted pushing a barrel up a stairway in a Sisyphean eternal torment. There are so many ghosts here who, by reports of their manner of dress, act kind of like spiritual tree rings for the castle's history, stretching from the Middle Ages to up to the Victorian era. Two little girls known as Emily and Charlotte can occasionally be seen playing in the halls and stairways, and while this sounds almost charming, the ghosts of these two little girls can also be witnessed engaging in far more morbid scenarios. Charlotte, who may have died from polio or another debilitating illness, has been seen with a lame and withered leg that she is forced to trail gruesomely behind her. Emily, said to have died when she fell from the battlements, can be seen reenacting the moment of her death and vanishing just before she hits the ground. Sometimes you can also see the little girls in the company of a governess, who frequents the Great Hall. When there is a lit fire in the hearth, especially during winter, a whole ghostly entourage has been spotted warming themselves up, including an old woman, a priest, and a smartly dressed gentleman in green. Reading this catalog of haunts in Mildred Darby's written accounts, you have to give the woman some serious credit. She was, if anything, brave. After all, she wasn't driven out by the dead, but by vengeful mortals. In all of these dark tales, there are only two ghosts that ever seem to give Mildred genuine dread, the elemental, and an unknown entity that once stalked her bedchamber. Mildred was aware of a room in the house that may have been used by the O'Carrolls, specifically for execution. Known bluntly as the murder room, it was destroyed during the 1920s burning, probably for the best. Mildred mentions sleeping in this room one night and being grabbed by cold hands, which, as you might imagine, caused her to bolt upright in bed. 
Accounts vary as to whether she saw something. One states that she saw a vague outline of a figure at the foot of her bed, and another says she saw nothing. Regardless, she heard the sound of something heavy hitting the floor, followed by the disembodied whispers of prayer in the dark. In the morning, though I doubt she got much sleep after that, she checked the spot where she thought the noise had originated. There, she found a large blood stain soaked into the floor. Try as she might after sanding and washing the floor, the stain refused to disappear. Despite an extensive search, the legendary treasure of the Wild Captain has never been found. But if there was any appropriate time when it might have resurfaced, it would have been just after the burning of the castle. In 1922, the Darby sent a crew of workmen back to the castle to assess and clear the damage done. A workman uncovered a concealed door hidden below the wreckage, something that neither Mildred or her husband were aware of. Because this was a time before modern horror movies existed, the repairmen felt inclined to see where this trapdoor led, and after prying it open, they discovered a whole room had lain in secret underneath the chapel for likely hundreds of years. It was an oubliette, in French, a place to forget things, specifically people. Malcontents and prisoners would be thrown into these spaces to essentially starve and die in the darkness. The O'Carrolls took this one step further and had this hole in the floor lined with wooden spikes, guaranteeing an agonizing end to any unfortunate person unlucky enough to earn their wrath. The crewmen found hundreds of skeletons in this confined space, with enough bones for three carts for the crewmen to haul away for a proper burial. Curiously, the last Darby to occupy the castle bore the name of two of its most infamous rulers, Jonathan Charles Darby, Mildred Darby's husband. The Darbys never returned to their castle after the fire. And I mean, how could you? After scavering a heap of skulls lurking in secret in your basement? They left the castle to a family friend, but she did not last long. No, she didn't have a chance to escape. It said she died from a painful, mysterious, and excruciating case of gangrene infection. For years, Lep Castle sat empty and alone, though I'm hesitant to say entirely empty, until it was bought in the early 80s by an Australian gentleman, a historian named Peter Bartlett. And in a story already rife with interesting coincidences, Bartlett, turns out, was a descendant of the O'Bannon clan who had founded the castle centuries prior. After hundreds of years, the O'Bannons got back what was rightfully theirs. But it wasn't a smooth reacquisition. While trying to restore Lep Castle, Bartlett was thwarted by a spat of bad luck and financial problems. He called in a white witch, still common in Ireland to this day, and very lovely people, I may add, I've met one, to try and exercise the castle. However, after doing her best, the witch found that the ghosts were not willing to leave so easily. But they had also no intention of harming the innocent. Unlike the monstrous O'Carrolls, violent in life, their victims had no desire to perpetuate this legacy of violence in death. Then again, Bartlett never got to see the outcome of his restoration efforts. He died suddenly in 1989, after which the castle was bought by its present owner, the musician Sean Ryan, in 1991. Ryan and his wife Anne completed the restorations, though these efforts were not without incident either. Sean Ryan himself suffered two accidents that resulted in a broken kneecap and ankle. The misfortune and spooky occurring seemed to die down after Ryan and his wife used the bloody chapel itself as a christening for their grandchild. 
In doing so, they may have brought some light to ward away the lingering darkness of the castle, and ever since, the ghostly presences have acted as sentinels watching over the Ryan family. Lep Castle does not offer overnight lodgings, and is a private residence overseen by the Ryans, but they are happy to welcome incurious and respectful tourists to the castle grounds, and on some occasions they have even hosted visitors inside the castle walls themselves. If Sean Ryan has come upon the wild captain's treasure, he hasn't said anything. But perhaps it's for the better to leave that gold alone anyway. If it were to be discovered and removed, you never know just who might come back looking for it. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. Special thanks to Courtney and Sasha and Spoopower for coordinating Krista, our first guest voice for a narrated episode. If you like what you heard and don't want to be haunted by regret, you can leave a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or iTunes and a review. You can connect with Relic on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod and check out our page at relic.blueberry.net. Next time... We are joined by several special guests for five tales of historical and archaeological terror. It's our Halloween special. The adventure continues. <laughs>